0: fleshment okay so some people would think about god becoming flesh fully god fully man these creeds that the church has thought about for two millennia and um, in fleshment anything else what do we think about the incarnation what are some thoughts the word became flesh and dwelt among us so yeah similar theme um Joy and rejoicing. And oftentimes people sing hymns like joyful, joyful, we adore you, especially around like Christmas time. A lot of people think of the incarnation. They think of the nativity. Um, this isn't going to be a Christmas sermon, by the way. Um, they think of the nativity. So they think about enfleshment. They think about the nativity. And then in practical terms, we think about Jesus walking around in Palestine 2,000 years ago doing miracles, teaching his disciples, and establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So, there's actually, all of those are fine, all of those are valid, but there's actually a few problems if you were to focus on just one of those to the exclusion of others, and there's one that we haven't even hit yet. So just focusing on Jesus at Bethlehem and the infancy narrative and Mary and the manger and the stable and all of that stuff, and this is from my background, that becomes your experience of Christ. Like, that's the most important episode that you spend your whole year preparing for, and when we think about Christ, we think about baby Jesus in the manger and joy to the world and all of that is well and good. But if we read the Gospels, all of those infancy narratives and accounts are supposed to be a framing And like setting the stage for something exciting to happen. They're saying this is an important person that has come into the world. We're going to set the stage with these lineages. We're going to set the stage, these miracles and angels rejoicing so that we can hear him speak. What is this man going to do? And so if we were to focus on just the infancy and just the nativity, we would miss out on Jesus himself and what he wants to say. Does anyone know the first words that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew? You don't have to. Thanks, Brother Dan. Yeah. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so if we were to just focus on the infancy narrative, we start to miss out on on his messages. And it's his words that have truth and life, according to Peter. But I'm actually not going to talk about that too much. What I want to look at tonight is the incarnation according to Paul. So looking through Paul, and again, this may seem a bit abstract. But it's going to get us to a very, I think, exciting place by the end of this. And a very meaningful place and an encouraging place. So the incarnation according to Paul. And so if you want to turn to this to your, in your Bibles, we're going to be spending a lot of time in Galatians 4. That's going to be where we spend most of, most of our time. So Paul is an interesting interesting person. He's some of our earliest letters in the Bible are Paul's. He's our most he's he's written the most out of any of the church writers in the scriptures. He's the greatest church planter in history and he's got an interesting window because when he talks about the incarnation, he almost never actually never mentions Mary. name never mentions the nativity never mentions any of those things that we're used to thinking about with the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us he never mentions any of it but he is emphatic about the incarnation as that being the key to our faith so what do i mean by all that um we're going to walk through this step by step again the first part it's it might seem a bit abstract but the last part is going to be critical um So, let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. Okay. And it might be, yeah. So, the context of Galatians is that Paul is writing this to a, a network of churches in this area of the world, in Galatia, and he has... All the Galatians have begun in faith, and they've been established as churches, and they're growing. And then all of a sudden, a lot of false teachers are coming and saying a bunch of different things, specifically about circumcision, about keeping the Jewish laws, about um, about the Mosaic Covenant, and saying, if you're going to be a true Christian, you have to do these things. You have to keep circumcision. You have to keep the Sabbath. All of that, all of that stuff. Um, and Paul is... Furious, actually furious at one point, but he's at the very least concerned about about these these brothers and these sisters being exposed to this teaching and what this is going to do in their faith. They've started in their faith, but are they going to continue? And that's the um, context for Galatians, the entirety of the book, but where we're going to be starting in this chapter. Okay. So. I'm just going to start reading in Galatians 4, verse 1. We're going to go 1 through 7 to begin with. And this is jumping in in the middle of the book. So, he said, actually, let's start in verse 3. He says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So I'm going to stop right there. This is actually the only reference to Mary we get in all of Paul. In the entirety of every epistle that Paul writes, this is the only reference to Mary that we get. In the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That's it. It's the only reference to Mary that we get. So we'll just note that. And it's in the context of us receiving adoption as sons and daughters of God. So we'll bracket that and we'll move on. Turn with me to verse 12. Verse 12, and this is going to be verse 12 through 19. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, I would have gouged out your eyes or my own eyes, depending on the translation. And get, Oh, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Okay, so I'm hoping that caught your ear, that last verse. Um, We see that Paul is in the anguish of childbirth. So we've only mentioned Mary once. Um, we, We said born of a woman. Also, if we want to... If we want to think about how is it that Mary conceived Christ? And it's kind of a a weird question. But what was the process? An angel preached good news to Mary. And Mary received that good news in faith. Said, may it be done. And she conceives Christ in her. And so Paul, here, we have in verse... um, 14, he's saying, Galatians have already heard the good news from Paul, and he even goes on to emphasize that, sorry, received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And so, we're, at least some similarities. So, so, at least walk with me through these similarities. Um, we have Mary receiving the good news in faith and conceiving of Christ in her. And we have Paul in his apostolic ministry in the church preaching good news to the Galatians, them receiving it in faith, and then Paul saying, now I, in my ministry as a church, as an apostle, am laboring in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. So it's very interesting because Paul never talks about the birth of Christ, except what we just mentioned. Born in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman. That's the only mention of what we're talking about with the infancy narratives. But he talks about Christ being born a lot throughout all of his epistles. In this very context of Christ is born where? Christ is born in you. And it's interesting because this Christ in you language is found in every public epistle that Paul writes. Every single epistle that Paul writes to a church or a network of churches, anything that's supposed to be circulated in public, he's insistent, everyone, Christ in you, Christ in you, Christ in you, Christ in you, Christ in you. Christ in you. So again, bracket this, this is the abstract part, so if you need to, you feel the need to check out at any point of the sermon, this is the time to do it, and then the end when we wrap it all up is the important part, so giving you full, full permission there. <laughs> Okay, so we at least have some interesting data points if you're willing to follow me thus far. So let's turn to verses 21 through 27. And this is is where I think it gets interesting. Verse 21, Galatians 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free was born according to the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children from slavery. The other, or she is Hagar. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, one is, she is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one of the one who has a husband. Okay, so if your eyebrows are raised or scrunched or something confused, that's me reading this passage for almost my entire Christian life when it's talking about the two covenants and the mystery and the allegory and then especially rejoice, O barren one. Like, what does this passage have to do with anything that Paul is saying? Who is the Jerusalem above that is free? And then the very interesting part, which I don't want to shy away from any part in scripture, I want to be able to have an answer, but who is our mother? Because Paul writes it in the gospel, he says, the Jerusalem above which is free, she is our mother, in verse 26. Has anyone ever wondered about this passage? Okay, I'm seeing, okay, cool, I'm seeing a lot of hands and a lot of nodding. So, that's the question that I want to dive into. What is going on with this whole passage? This whole chapter is Paul talking to the Galatians about them continuing on in the faith. And he's using all of these strange pictures and I'm laboring in the pains of childbirth and talking about these covenants and then the Jerusalem above, which is our mother. What is Paul talking about? What is going on? And so I want to dive headfirst into that. So if we're going to find out who is our mother, Mother. And again, it's a really weird phrase, and even saying it over the pulpit, it's like a very uncomfortable phrase because it's not the way we're used to talking, but it's the way that Paul wants to communicate this truth. The Jerusalem which is above, who is free, is our mother. Who is that? Well, we can find some clues. Because in verse 27, he says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth, and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So, who is it that until now has had no children? It almost sounds like a riddle. Who is it until now who has had no children, has no husband, and is yet now having multiple children? You get the weird conundrum? He's saying there's someone, something up until now has had no children, is not married, and has lots of children at this moment, or is now having lots of children. So does anyone know where this passage is found? Anyone? It's probably Isaiah 54. Perfect. So feel free to turn there. We're not going to spend too long there, but feel free to turn to Isaiah 54, because if we're going to find out what Paul is doing, we have to go back to this this passage because he's presuming that people are going to know this context. So, Isaiah 54 verse one through two, or no, actually just verse one. The interesting thing with all of these chapter numbers is that we should ignore them. I mean, not when we're actually trying to cite things, but in general, like when we're looking through the scriptures, they did not exist. So Isaiah 54, not a thing. There's no chapter number. And so this is just in the middle of Isaiah. Who knows what comes before Isaiah 54? anyone? Isaiah 53. Thank you, Graham. Um, Isaiah 53 comes before Isaiah 54. And does anyone know what's significant about Isaiah 53? It's one of the most quoted passages in all of scripture. It's one of the foundations, especially for Protestants, evangelicals, for a lot of just the Western tradition. And actually, most church history, it's the suffering servant. And so I want to read through a section of Isaiah 53 and move right into Isaiah 54 as if that chapter number doesn't exist because it's the same thought. It's not like there's Isaiah 53 here. Okay, cool. We just read about the suffering servant, period. Okay, moving on to Isaiah 54, new thought. No, that's not what's happening. So I want to read it as it was originally written. Um, This is where we get that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb... That is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This beautiful passage about Christ suffering for his people, taking on their sins. So I want to just read through um, from verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Let's start in verse 10. And again, these are some of the most poignant words in scripture, and some of the most beautiful, and some of the most cited. It says, yet... Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. This beautiful picture. And so now the question, we can focus the question a bit more of what is going on. The context is Christ's death. Christ's death on the cross as the suffering servant bearing our iniquities. And so we move from death to birth within the same breath. And so what what comes to mind? Let's ask it this way. Who has children through Christ's death? The death of Christ on the cross leads directly to this birthing from the barren woman. And so what about Christ's death is associated with birth? What about Christ's death is associated with birth? Does anyone have any thoughts? What's, sorry, what's that? Okay, yeah. So the church, more specifically, baptism. If, you, if we were to turn to Romans 6, it's as many of us as we're baptized and receive new birth, we've been baptized into Christ's death. Um, we are baptized into his death and born again to life into the church. In Galatians 3.27, he's already mentioned this in this epistle. He says, anyone who has been baptized has put on Christ, has new birth in Christ. And so there's something about Christ's death that's bringing forth many children into the church. And so, if you'll follow me this far, what Paul is saying, actually, I'll say one more question. Who is until now who is promised to a spouse that is not yet come who is waiting for the bridegroom again it's the church the church has no husband the church is barren has had no children up until now until the death of Christ and now for the first time the church who's still waiting for her husband is having many, 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 many children through the death of Christ. And so, if you follow with the first several, probably hundred years of church history, anyone who's dealing with this passage, they're saying the church is our mother. And so, hold that thought because that sounds, I think, to me very strange and very weird, but I want to flesh this out. By the way, Cyprian says... No one can have God as his father who has not the church as his mother. This is all throughout a lot of the early church. What they're saying is that you can't be a Christian on your own. You can't be isolated. You can't be on an island. You can't do Christianity by yourself. You can't have God as your father if you don't have the church as your mother. And so any time for the first few hundred years, if there was any mention about the virgin mother, it wasn't about Mary. If you go look throughout all of the sources, every single person is saying it's the church and again I want to flesh this out some more so keep following me I know I'm it's a different way of looking at things and it seems a bit abstract but I think it's going to get us to a very exciting place Um, so the virgin Mary pledged to a man is conceiving a child and the church is pledged to her spouse and is conceiving many children if this still sounds far-fetched let's keep going and keep diving into this imagery so We've already seen Paul in his apostolic role, lab- in his church function, laboring over the Galatians, laboring in the pains of childbirth in his church role. Um, so after you give birth to children, what do you do? What's one of the first things you do to... You, you're in Bartlett Street. <laughs> um, you nurse them. Um, I'm blessed to have two children, and it wasn't the case for the second because of some complications, but with Abraham, the very first thing you do, Abraham comes, there's these pains that Paul is talking about, the pains of childbirth, until finally the joy of a child comes into the world, and then the very first thing you do is nurse them. You give them life, you give them sustenance. So Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, writes this, But we prove to be gentle among you, As a nursing mother, tenderly cares for her own children. In the same way, we have a fond affection for you, and we're delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you've become very dear to us. So Paul's, in a different epistle, saying, I'm the nursing mother. Like Paul, me, the apostle, the team of people that are preaching the gospel to you, we are acting like nursing mothers to you. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, Paul is saying, in fact, if, Okay, Pauline authorship of Hebrews. I know a lot of you are raising your (laughs) eyebrows. The writer writes, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And so we see this imagery being played out over and over. Paul is saying, I am laboring in childbirth until Christ is born. I want to talk about Christ's birth, but I'm not talking about the manger in any of my epistles. I'm talking about Christ being born in you. I'm not talking about Mary giving Jesus milk. I'm talking about the church giving you these foundation elementary truths of the gospel, sustaining you with spiritual substance, giving you milk. Um, And so, if we're going to follow this far, just as Christ took his body from Mary, the church is where Christ takes his body in this context, in Galatians 4. And if that sounds weird, where does Paul talk about the body of Christ? The answer is all over the place. That's like one of his favorite topics. The body of Christ is the church. If I were to if I had led with that from the very beginning and said the church is the body of Christ, I don't think there would be as much confusion. There'd be a lot less like raised eyebrows because it's a given. The church is the body of Christ. We're so used to that language because that's how we talk. We talk about, um yeah, we talk about being a part of the body. We talk about the, at the giftings of the body. And we're so used to that language that Paul writes about. But how often do we actually think of that? What does it mean that the church is the body of Christ. He's not saying the church is like the body of Christ. This is a cool picture to think about. This is a helpful way to think of the church. He's saying the church is the body of Christ. Just a few passages, and again, these are just a few of what Paul has to say. In Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and fill up in my flesh and, I, in my flesh, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is, the church. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. In talking about prostitution in 1 Corinthians, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And so it's not just a helpful picture of like, oh, it's nice to think of the church as the body of Christ. He's saying this has implications. When you sin, do you not know that you're members of the body of Christ himself? We see in Ephesians that Christ is the head of the church, His body, And then this is actually what's based off of the Eucharist. He says, because there is one bread, you who are many are one body. So I think my whole life I'm used to the church being called the body of Christ. But what does that actually mean for us? And I'm going to lay out that this is Paul's view of the incarnation. At least this is Paul's emphasis of the incarnation. That when Paul thinks about the body of Christ, he's thinking about the church. And when we think about the body of Christ, we should be thinking about the church. We talk so much about it that it just becomes language, but it's a reality. That's what Paul's laboring to give us. And so, if this is the case, where is Paul getting this? Like, this is a very kind of out there thought. Where is Paul getting this? What is it, how is he making these connections that the church is the body of Christ? What if you had to pick Paul's most formative life experience? What would what would what would you say? If you had to pick one experience that changed Paul's life forever, that was his formative life experience. Does anyone have any Damascus? Damascus. Okay, perfect. The road to Damascus. Let me read that real quick. In Acts nine verse three through four, it says, "As he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground." And heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting God's people? Why are you persecuting um, the saints? Why are, you persecut- why are you persecuting me? And this is Paul's most formative life experience. That his whole life, he was one thing and now he's another. He was going one direction, he's going another. We who were dead to sin are made alive. Like, this is the crux of Paul's life. And it's Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because when you persecute my people, you are persecuting me. It's as if Jesus is saying, anything you do to the least of these my brethren, you're doing to me. And so Paul's spending a whole life meditating on this and spends a whole life articulating the church as the body of Christ. And working, he says himself, as a midwife, laboring and anguishing in the pains of childbirth, nursing. All of this mother imagery is what the epistles are filled with. And this is Paul's life work. And I'm not saying that any of this negates like the incarnation, Jesus walking around 2,000 years ago. All of that's a given. Um, so where else is he getting this? Well, if we look in... The Gospels, if we look in Luke, the road to Emmaus, what's happening on the road to Emmaus? It's a really weird episode. I'll read, um, I don't have the chapter number. It's near the end, if not the end. Um, It says, as they approach the village to which they were going, this is after the death, after the resurrection. These two disciples that don't recognize Jesus, and they're talking, and Jesus is explaining the gospel to them. they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Like, what is going on? This is another of those weird passages, like, why is Jesus post-resurrection just, like, disappearing? It's like, what's the purpose of this? And the Gospel of John said there were, like, millions of things that he could have included. He could have filled the whole world with books about Christ, but he only chose specific things. It's the same with the gospel writers. They're choosing specific things to tell us They're choosing specific instances to tell us certain things, and so, (laughs) sorry, we have to ask: Why is this episode included, and why is it included the way that it is? What's going on that Jesus is disappearing, and when when does Jesus disappear in this episode? After they've broken bread, as soon as he breaks the bread, he disappears. Like, why, why would that be the case? Well, the disciples are realizing that, oh, wait, me and you, at the breaking of the bread, we're his body. We are the body of Christ. And again, if that's a bit too out there for you, then we can just go back to Jesus' own words with the parable of the sheep and the goats. Like, when did we ever give you food? When did we ever give you drink? When did we ever take care of you or see you in prison or take care of you or in sick? He said, anything you do to the least of these My brethren, you do unto me. And so Paul's just not getting this like by himself. Obviously, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But this is based in Jesus' own words. And this is based in the gospel. That the church is the body of Christ. And anything that we do to the least of these, our brethren, we're doing to Christ. So, this is the point where I'm asking you to turn back on. This is the the more important, um, the wrap-up section of like what what does all this mean and why is this important and why should I care about any of this? like It's nice to have a talking point about who is our mother that's an interesting point. What does all of this mean and why does Paul feel compelled to write this? 1 John 4.20 says that whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Well just stop there. That's one of those punches, like everyone talks about John being like the apostle of love, and it's like, this is John writing, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Why does he say that? For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. Anyone who, can't, anyone who does not love their brother or sister who they have seen can't love God who they haven't seen. It's like the Jews saying they love God and hate Christ. Like, you can't do that. That's impossible. And Jesus goes back and forth with the Jews saying, you can't love God and hate me because that's who I am. I'm the visible body, the fullness of the glory of God in Christ. You can't love God and hate Christ. John's saying the same thing. You can't love God and hate your brothers and sisters. You can't love God and hate his body is the crux of it. And so I want you all to, like, look around the room At each other, not just random things. Look around the room at each other. See faces, familiar faces, unfamiliar faces. This is what this passage is about. This is what this passage is about. These are the people that this passage is about. Us, right here, the body of Christ. That we're called to love one another. The people in this room, the people in all the churches scattered all over. And so... I want to hammer in just a few points about all this. Like, I wanted to go the, long, the scenic route about the church is the body of Christ because we're so used to that language that I think it falls on flat ears. Like, when we say the church is the body, we say it kind of blithely. We say it kind of just like that's what its name is. Oh, yeah, the church is the body. I'm part of the body. But I wanted to take the scenic route because I think there's something way deeper, going on, and way more important, that it's not just a name, it's the incarnation. If we're looking for the incarnation here and now, it's another question, is where is Christ here and now? Christ is in his church. If we're looking for the incarnation, Jesus isn't walking around on, you know, two legs in Palestine anymore. Jesus is moving and acting in the world through his body, through the church. And so, anything we do to the least of our brethren. Anything we do to the least of these Christ's brethren, we're doing to Christ. And I want to hammer that point home because it changed the way I view pretty much everything. It changes the way obviously you view church life, but it changes the way you view like life planning. It changes the way you view everything. If the way that I'm interacting with my brothers and sisters is not just You know, Christ looks at it and either approves or disapproves. But it's the way that I'm interacting with Christ that's incredibly, incredibly important. it's a beautiful, beautiful promise. Because all of our, all of the things that make up life, like the mundane things that we do over and over and over and over again, and sometimes it's a bit difficult. Maybe it's opening up a house for hosting. After a long week, that you weren't expecting for, but there's a church situation that needs your attention. Or there's a visitor from another church. You open up your house for hosting, and maybe you're used to doing that. And it gets tiring because you have sick kids, and the house is a mess, and it's this. Anything you do to the least of these, your brethren, you're doing to Christ. Maybe it's helping with a move. There's a lot of moving around in Boston. I've been here for four years. There's a lot of, like, within Boston, people, like, move from place to, like, apartment to apartment. And there's a lot of people helping move. And it's not just nice things that we do one for another. Anything we do to the least of these are brethren. We're doing unto Christ. Amen. Toiling over a meal for someone who's just had a baby or someone who's sick when you're already behind on everything and you're laboring over this meal and oh like the this is burning and everything's falling apart baby's crying anything we do to the least of these our brethren we're doing to Christ it's as if Jesus himself were lying sick what would we do we would all flock to him we would all minister to him we would wait on his every whim we would do everything we could to minister to our lord And he's giving us that opportunity to do live right now. We don't have to wait for the eschaton to serve Christ. We can do it right now. When you see your brother or sister sick, you know that they've been having a hard week. When you go visit them, when you send them an encouraging message, even these tiny things are the things you're doing for Christ. And he says this, like a cup of cold water, and you receive a prophet's reward, like these beautiful promises that Christ gives to us are small deeds, one to another, are not small in Christ's eyes. I would preached a long time ago about humanity having a vision problem. like Even Christians, um, I think we might be able to go and listen to that message, but there's this idea that we can't see clearly even yet, that Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we could see things more and more clearly. If only we could see what our actions were, if only we could see what these small acts of love one to another were, that they're not small in Christ's eyes. And again, this isn't—I don't want to say just feel good—but it also has evangelistic implications. Like, what? How does Jesus say that they're going to know that we're His disciples? It's by the love that we have one for another. So it's this beautiful promise that we get to interact with Christ on a daily basis in the way that we're interacting with our brothers and with our sisters, even in the tiniest things when we're making sacrifices. It's also a warning. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, it's split into two halves. When you visited, when you gave water, when you gave clothes, when you gave food, when you helped these people out, anything you did to the least of these, my brethren. But then he turns to those on his left. And he says, when you didn't do these things, you didn't do them to me. And so it's this beautiful reality that I hope should inspire us to good works into excitement one for another and this love that is just blossoming and overflowing one for another as if for Christ himself but the opposite is true when we're holding bitterness when we bite and devour when we misrepresent when we turn away all of these things are done to Christ himself when we harbor frustration anger bitterness these are the things that we're doing To Christ himself and so I want to take the scenic route of the church is not like the body of Christ the church is the body of Christ if we're going to follow the scriptures and the excitement that that should breed and also the sobriety that that should engender all of our small acts and our acts of love and our acts of consideration and also all of our um, missteps all of our frustrations all of our rivalries, all of these things are within the body of Christ. So, it's also, I think, exciting because just practically speaking, if you're going into a given week or a season of life, and I'm hoping that all of us are excited to serve Christ, and oftentimes that can feel kind of abstract. Like, what does it mean to serve Christ? Like, what amazing thing should I do? Potentially, like, sail off to some far lands and preach the gospel, and I want to serve Christ. I'm like, yes, if you can, if God's calling you, yes, do that. But it can look a lot smaller in the meantime, even on a given day or a given week. How can I serve Christ? Well, go tend to his body. Go tend to his, bro- to, to his brothers, to his sisters, to your brothers, to your sisters. Go tend to them. Go nurture them. Go enc- encourage them. Go exhort them. Go give them material aid. Give them food, water, whatever they need And it puts us in a posture of looking around, like we just did, looking around at the faces of our brothers and sisters and not just having them be faces that we interact with. Like, I'm not just, it's not just me and God, and it's a bunch of people doing me and God together. That's not what we're doing. What is it? Like, the church isn't a support club for spirituality. It's not that we all go and do our own private spirituality. When we're looking for ways to serve Christ himself, we do it in the body. We serve his body. Um, when we're looking at the world around us and we see something that ought not to be the way it is, we say this is terrible. This is not the way things should be. This is not what God would have for his world. I wish someone would go do something. I wish that God would do this. If Christ were here, he would go fix that. All of the sudden, that flips it right around and says, okay, well, where is Christ's body? If I'm seeing something wrong in the world around me, it falls to me, it falls to you, it falls to us, it falls to Christ's body to minister to the world. And then finally, one of my favorite passages is Second Corinthians three eighteen, And it says, But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, From glory to glory, just as from the Lord and Spirit. So as we behold the Lord, as we behold Christ, we're transformed glory by glory by glory. These beautiful promises that Paul has for us. But what does that mean? Like, how can we behold Christ? Where do we behold Christ? Well, we can do it in the scriptures. We see Christ in the scriptures. We can behold him in prayer. But there's also another very tangible way to behold him. Where is Christ? Paul writes, Christ in you. The hope of glory. So Christ in you, in you, in you. Like, everybody look around again. I want you to look around to brothers and sisters. Like, make eye contact. This is where we behold Christ and are transformed from glory to glory to glory. And that doesn't mean that I just look and it's like, oh, hey, I don't know, Brother Graham, Brother Brother Matthew, Like, there's something deeper going on because it's not that we're beholding our flesh. It's not that we're beholding the old man, all of the missteps that we're making. It's not that, because we're all still fighting the flesh. We war against the flesh daily. The old man still rears its head. So we're not beholding that. We're looking around at our brothers and sisters and beholding all those things which are true, which are honorable, which are just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, we're beholding Christ in each other. The work that Paul says has begun in each of us, that he says will become complete, Christ has already begun a work in each of us. Christ is already dwelling in our hearts through faith. And so when we're looking around and we see these things that are pure and noble and worthy of praise and commendable in our brothers and sisters, and as we as a body behold that in each other, that's when we as a body are transformed glory to glory to glory to glory. And so it's a call to adjust our eyes in How we see the world, the church, each other, looking for opportunities to serve the church, looking for opportunities to serve each other, but then even looking at the face and the actions of our brother and our sister when things are difficult, when things are tense, when things are frustrating, and having to deal with sin, having to deal with frustration, having to deal with tension, but the anchor point is Christ in us. It's those things that are true and honorable and pure and good and just and commendable. That those are the things that are our grounding point, and as we behold them one to another, we're transformed glory to glory to glory. So, that was the important part. Um, I want to leave that with you that when we talk about the church being a body, it's not just like the U.S. government is a body, the local. Kiwanis Club is a body. It's a body of people. It's not just a body. It's not just a group. Paul is saying this is the body. This is the body of Christ. And the words that I want to leave all of us with are the words of Christ himself Anything you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. And so it's a promise, it's a spur to action. It's a warning. It calls us to live the same way that we live recklessly for Christ and leave father, mother, brother, sister, leave fields and lands for Christ. We do for one another. And Jesus himself says that. When he's giving the new commandment in John, it's not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not the new commandment that he gives. Specifically, it's not loving your neighbor as yourself. It says, love one another as I have loved you. And how has Christ loved us? How do we know love? We know love in this, that God sent his son, that he would die for us. And so this is the call that Paul is trying to give to us, give to the Galatians in specific, but give to the body as a whole throughout all of the centuries until Christ comes back and claims his church that anything we do to the least of these, our brethren, we do to this, and the recklessness and zeal with which we serve Christ ought to be the recklessness and the zeal which we serve each other. The sobriety and the fear with which we approach Christ's words and not wanting to transgress and not wanting to mar the image of Christ is the same sobriety and the fear that we interact with each other. That in no way, shape, or form let me ever mar the image of Christ in my brother and my sister. So, all of this to say, I'm hoping this is exciting. I'm hoping like, the scenic route was worth it. But I really want to hit home that the church is the body of Christ. And as we go forward through this week, through this month, through the next season, through the next year, but also through our whole lives, like I want this to be a switch in how we view the terminology body of Christ. And I want us to take this to heart. Because anything we do, to the least of these our brothers, we do to Christ. So that's what I have for us today.